بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم والصلاة والسلام على أشرف الأنبياء والمرسلين وبعد السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته I'd like just to ask first off um, how many people are our Muslims in here are Muslims practicing Muslims yeah, I don't want to embarrass some people or something so the, the, the majority are I'm taking it which um, I find it a little difficult only because I like to keep um, focused at a level that everybody's going to understand and so since there are some people that are not practicing Muslims I'll try to minimize the use of vocabulary that is common coined amongst the Muslims and then for those who saw a tape, I, I guess I heard that there was a uh -huh, that there was a a video from Isna, and I made an excuse that I hadn't had any sleep, and I'm going to use that same excuse today because, in fact, I actually got off uh, a plane from uh, Jeddah and then got on a plane with a short interval of a day to Canada. So I was in Mecca and Medina during Ramadan. And actually the reason I'm here in the States is because I was invited here and the people in Mecca thought I was insane when I told them that I had to go because I had a, a talk in Toronto, Canada. They said, how, how, how can you leave the Kaaba <laughs> for a talk in Toronto, Canada? And I said, well, I made the commitment before I actually knew I was going to be in Mecca during that blessed time. So I'm keeping my commitment here. So due to this jet lag, and I also feel like I'm at about 37,000 feet um, right now. So if I talk over your heads, it's only because of that uh, experience. About the topic, a call to da'wah. If you look, I think my experience has been, I've done a lot of traveling, my experience has been really to sum it up, a sociologist at Berkeley who's um, been there for several years told me not too long ago that for about 30 years he was an atheist and just recently he had um, come to realize that there is a God, this was what he said. And he said, but what shocked him was that it wasn't only his realization but really something that he felt that was taking place all over the world and I think right now in the sense that while we see intense darkness in the world I think there's also these beacons of light that are emanating out from different corners on the earth and I think it's not simply the Muslims that are rediscovering their faith but I think it's happening in many regions on the earth and I don't think that the reason that this is happening is something that can be reduced to a materialistic explanation which is generally how Western, certainly Western analysts like to interpret these things. They like to say that the reason that there's a resurgence of Islam in the Muslim world is due to the fact that there's geopolitical situations there that are ripe for uh, the situation to come about. People tend to find simplistic answers in religion. When times get complicated, people tend to look towards religion for answers. And I don't think it it's, can be reduced to that 
simple of a um, formula for interpreting it. What I would say, though, is that we have seen in our lifetimes things and events, really, that have been phenomenal. Anybody that's over 30 years of age has seen extraordinary changes in, in human society. People that are around 70 or 80 or 90 years old have seen unbelievable changes, things that really are unimaginable if they hadn't seen them. If you look uh, at this century alone, one of the great arguments against religion is that all the wars that humans have fought have been so-called quote-unquote religious wars. And yet, if we look at all these so-called religious wars, we'll find that, in fact, they, the amount of people that died in those religious wars is minuscule compared to the amount of people that have died in this century alone due to such ideologies as communism and democracy. We have seen in this century over 180 million people killed through technological means. 180 million people. And really that's a conservative estimate. We've seen in our lifetime hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions, killed. Many of us have seen it on television. And the most recent example certainly was the Gulf War and now Bosnia and Herzegovina. And these are only the ones that get news coverage. There's things going on in Burma. There's things going on in the Philippines. There's things going on in Kashmir, in Africa, in many different areas in Africa that don't have the benefit, if we can call it a benefit, of uh, getting news coverage or concern. And I think there's a deep sense amongst a lot of people that these are uh, extremely uh, unusual times, that they're times of great events. What we've witnessed really with the destruction of, of sovereign states uh, in the last few years, and I think the dismantling is going to continue. It's not completely intact because the apparatus whereby uh, it would create basically a one world situation is not fully intact, but it's moving and it's been moving for some time towards that direction. So while all of this is happening, while all of these people have been killed, while all these wars have taken place, there's this deep sense, right, of despair in many places. There's also a deep sense of cynicism in many places. And I think from that environment, there's a, there's a need for answers. There's a need for light. Because the human being by his nature or by her nature is unable to exist in a void. People have to have meaning. If we look at the 19th century and really what happened to religion, how religion was dismantled from the lives of people, because it's something that actually we can see the progress that took place. In the 19th century, we had the Industrial Revolution in the West and had massive changes that began to take place. But within the intellectual atmosphere, what was happening was there was a deep analysis, really, of traditional religious texts in a field that was called philology. 
And what these people began to discover was that these texts were in fact, um, there was a great deal of mythology, for instance, in the Old and New Testament. There were a lot of things that uh, could be traced back to roots that were alien to the basic and fundamental claims of those books themselves. And this led to a, really a sense of It basically destroyed Christianity, is what it did. It took some time, right? But what these intellectuals really kind of worked out was that what we're dealing with is in the Old Testament, a very parochial book, or a provincial book, whereby there's this tribal deity that goes around destroying anybody that opposes these 12 tribes in the midst of the deserts of Egypt and, and what's now present-day Israel. And then you move to the New Testament, which has a little more of a universal flavor. It's a little easier to swallow than the Old Testament. But it's got all this metaphysical fiction. And so these people looked at this, and then at the same time while this was going on, this critical analysis of these texts, and it was beginning to seep down into the... Uh, centers of learning, at the same time there were remarkable transformations taking place in the social sciences. Darwin's theory was really a justification for colonialism because racism ultimately is, is a way that the, ex the people that exploit are able to in, in a sense justify their exploitation. It's nothing other than that. Racism is not about color, it's not about um, ethnic background, what it is about is about exploiters need a justification for exploiting the people that they're exploiting or for feeling good about it. So if we look at people that we uh, tyrannize and terrorize and say these people are really, uh, they're not fully human, their frontal lobes aren't as developed as ours, they're really only useful for uh, bondage or slavery, like Aristotle had his uh, peoples that were naturally inclined towards bondage. And so the whole Darwinian picture really justified the Europeans going into uh, Africa, into the Middle Eastern countries, into India and Asia, and made them really feel okay about being Christian and about doing all these things to these people in these places. So you had that taking place and then you had communism you had a materialistic explanation of class tension of struggles within societies basically being about bread and about food and about basic primary needs and then as religion is losing its its foot in the european psyche what m develops out of that really is what nietzsche termed nihilism or a void, really. And what Nietzsche said is once we eliminate God as an absolute value from the picture, all other values automatically disappear. You see? Because if I don't believe in a hisab, in an account, in a reckoning, if I don't believe that there's a moral authority outside of myself, that imposes upon me moral imperatives 
then really nobody can impose anything upon me. If there's nothing absolute, if things are relative in their nature, then nothing can, uh, nobody can tell me what to do or what to say. If, for instance, as a humanist, I choose not to kill, this is a hypothetical imperative. I choose not to kill. Somebody else down the road can say, I choose to kill. Right? And this happens. Well, why did you kill him? Well, it was Monday. I don't like Monday. Somebody actually said that. They killed something. Somebody went and shot a bunch of children in California, I think. And they asked them why they did it. Well, it was Monday. I don't like Mondays. You see, and that is really neat. I mean, you're getting into deep nihilism there. Where there's, there's nothing there. It's just a void. So if I've watched the predator 50 times, which I think that person did, I haven't seen it one time, but I'm supposing it's some gruesome uh, movie about a guy that goes around shooting people and kind of feeling good about it, right? And, and so this person had watched this program 50 times or something and then went out and did it, right? And then people say, well, there's no scientific evidence that watching television has any effect on the behavior of people. We've done several studies and there's no proof, right? So, the point of all that is suddenly Europe's without any moral foundation or base, as if they ever had one. There's an argument that they didn't. Because if you look at what they did, like Ralph Waldo Emerson said, I can't hear what you're saying because your actions are shouting so loudly. <laughs> Right, so while the Europeans have always told us about, these are my grandparents I'm talking about now, the Europeans have always told us about uh, democracy and, and Rousseau's rights of man and all these wonderful concepts, right? The fact of the matter is Europe seems to be kind of a leukemia on the, on the social body. Or leukemia is too, it's, that's a nice disease. It's more like a malignant growth, right? The kind of wherever it goes, it just eats people up, right? I mean, leukemia, you kind of get withered and just kind of fade away. Malignancies just get bigger and bigger until they kill everybody, right? And so there is an argument, but I would tend to say that there was at one time some moral base. Um, to give you an example, the Pope actually once um, declared using uh, crossbows as cruel and barbaric uh, warfare. Therefore, it can only be used on the Muslims, right? not on Christians, because it was cruel and barbaric to use it on Christians. Let's find another way to kill Christians that's less cruel and less barbaric, like swords and things like that. Whereas Muslims, since they're cruel and barbaric, let's use cruel and barbaric weapons to wipe out the Muslims. So there was some moral base. It didn't have a real strong foundation, but it was there. Now it's not there anymore. Now if you look at the Muslim countries, right? Don't. If you haven't, don't. Especially if you're not Muslim. Just ignore them, pretend they don't exist. And read about Islam. If you're from these unfortunate places, then if you do look at them, basically what we're dealing with is people that also, uh, unlike Christianity, that all of a sudden realized they had a made-up religion, right? I mean, it, it, 
That's what they realized, that it was made up. And so now that's how you can get these guys that say, I've got a prayer cloth here. If you send $50, you'll get your prayers answered because I swear it on the Bible. And people send in $50. And that's what Christianity has been reduced to, you see. They don't have anything other than that. It's in a superstitious phase because it's philosophical and it's... Uh, the philosophical and spiritual content of Christianity was basically um, destroyed during the... It really starts post-Renaissance, but it heats up 17th, 18th, and 19th century, finishes it off. That did not happen to Islam. What happened to Islam was in some ways more devastating, and in some ways not. It was not more devastating in the sense that Islam itself never lost its the power of the truth of Islam amongst the Muslims. What happened was the Muslims were defeated militarily. And that created such a massive crisis in the Muslim psyche. And the reason for that is simply stated, the Quran promises victory. It's actually a promise. I mean, the Quran talks about, um, and the Hadith talks about, the the nature of the war between truth and falsehood, that there are days that the truth has its uh, day and then there are days where falsehood has its day, but ultimately truth manifests and falsehood disappears and then what happens is uh, people go into decline and if you, you can read the Quran and look, there's deep analysis of societies in the Quran. So what happens is, is that the Muslims basically believe that we had such an innate superiority, right, that it really led to a type of superiority complex. That we can't be defeated because we're Muslims. Simple as that. And what happens is that they're defeated. And so there's this massive crisis. How is it that we're defeated? Well, all of a sudden you have all these ignorant Muslims that are seeing these Europeans coming with this massive technology and they're just knocked out by it, right? I mean, how do you fight people with swords when they have cannons and machine guns and now nuclear missiles, right? And so because of this deep crisis that took place, Islam, in a sense, lost its bearings within the society, but not initially. What happens is very sophisticated. The colonialists come in and they recognize that there's still this thing intact. So we have to really dismantle it. Because as long as there's even a semblance of this thing intact, we're threatened. Our presence here is threatened. And our interests, they're always talking about vested interests, America's vested interests, right? the vital interests of the Gulf region, right? This is what they talk about. They talk about interest, because that's what it's all about, interest. And so what happens is, is that they recognize the basic and fundamental thing that the Muslims meet, need to be disengaged from is their book. Now, they were already, to a great degree, separated from the book, but not completely. And part of the reason was, there were still very strong institutions of learning within the Muslim world. You see, Azhar was 
still this center of knowledge and learning. And people that went there did learn the whole traditional model, even if it was somewhat solidified, right? It had become solidified, but nonetheless, there were people that knew a Quranic worldview, and they were able to explain it to people. They went, people went, came from all over the world, studied there, went back to their countries. Same in Fez, at the Qarawiyyin, the same in the Yusufiyya, in Marrakesh, in Marrakesh, the same with the Zaytuna, the Nilamiya in Baghdad, and Turkey, the Madrasas that were all over Turkey. So there was this thing that was still somewhat intact. And so what happens is, and it's very sophisticated how they did it, is that they, they, they recognized that they had to break this historical link that the Muslims had with these traditions. So what they made the Muslims feel is that they were backward, and that these traditions were backward. That writing on a board and memorizing the Quran is backward, because now we have paper. Right? And so the Muslims developed this deep sense of inferiority. Whereas they had, what destroyed them was their superiority complex, right? Of thinking we can never be destroyed, so let's just sit around and drink um, sugared drinks in the palaces of Istanbul or the palaces of Cairo or wherever they were. And then the Europeans, meanwhile, are busy whittling away at developing more sophisticated crossbows, more sophisticated cruel and barbaric ways of killing Muslims. And before you know it, they were there, right? With their cruel and barbaric ways of killing Muslims. And the Muslims were kind of like, what happened, right? Like waking up from a dream. And so the, the whole uh, educational system begins to be dismantled. And this is all documented. You can actually go and read how they did this. Right? They studied it, they sent in people, studied the whole thing, recognized here's key issues, these are the things they're divisive about. They, they, um, they re reintroduced areas of divisiveness amongst the Muslims, particularly the Aqidah, which is a big area that the Muslims have always um, had some Aqidahs like the belief system, but pretty much things were smoothed out, so let's renew this argument, right? So now you have Muslims all over the Muslim world making takfir, right? Calling other Muslims, their aqidah is not straight, and this isn't right, and that's not right, and, and that goes on all over the Muslim world now, right? So, as these institutes are destroyed, the, the last one that was actually intact was the Yusufiyah, which in 1938 is basically... Uh, finished off by the French. And so there you've severed now completely the Muslims from a historical link to their traditional understanding of Islam. And what emerges out of this is a new... I'm going to get to... If you don't think this has anything to do with Dawah, it does. <laughs> but I'm going the long way around, right? So just be patient. We've got how much time left? How long have I been talking? 20 minutes. 20 minutes. Okay. Is this boring? I, okay. All right. I just want to make sure because I'm, like I said, about 37,000 feet. So. I, I keep wanting to say coffee, tea. <laughs> so, where were we? <laughs> 
Right, the Yusufiyah. So what happens is they dismantled all these, and what's left is these a few kind of places left in, in the middle of Swat Valley in Pakistan or India or the deserts of Mauritania or Mali. And the only people now that go to religious schools are the people that can't get into any other school, right? So you've got like fourth and fifth, sixth rate intellects studying Islamic law that was written by first rate intellects, right? Now that's a big problem because they can't understand them. So now they've had to rewrite all the old books in this new, what they call, fiqh al-wadih, right? Clear fiqh, <laughs> like clear jurisprudence, because that other stuff was so difficult and ambiguous. What it means is jurisprudence for mentally incapacitated people, right? So we wonder why we're not producing any uh, first-rate thinkers in Islamic thought, right? because nobody's studying it. They're all in engineering school discovering the latest cruel and barbaric way to blow up people. <laughs> and they're working for Rockwell International doing it. Or wherever, I don't know. I mean, isn't that what Muslims, are all the brilliant Muslims are? I just met this guy who's like a PhD and nuclear physicist, physicist from Algeria and he's working on a new laser device <laughs> to zap people, right? <laughs> which is probably nicer than a crossbow through the heart, but nonetheless, it's kind of got the same mentality there, right? Fry your enemy. That, that'll be the motto of the corporation that sells it, right? You don't have to drop smart bombs, just make them disappear with our new laser device that can actually be automated from your command control in, in Washington, D.C., with the satellite over Dubai. <laughs> so you don't even have to go over there, right? No more costs of shipping all the troops over and all this logistics. Just push a button and Baghdad disappears. I mean, that's where they're heading, isn't it? It seems like that, if you, if you look at it. If you want to get into arms, that's a real interesting, right? The, these great Western people that love peace and the United Nations is founded on breaking down weapons, swords into plowshares, right? So we can grow f wheat for everybody. And these same people, right, are, are sitting on the boards of corporations that are spreading vast amounts of highly destructive technology all over the third world. Over 50% of arms sales goes to the third world. And 49% of that goes to the Middle East itself. But those same people are there saying, we will not let anything interfere with the peace process, right? Except our profits, <laughs> right? Because that we can't interfere with that, right? Because that's the bottom line, which is what these people are all about, the bottom line. So, there you have it, right? That's the state of the Muslim world now. And now America's worked out even a better way, right, of dealing with the whole thing. America is so sophisticated, right? They're like eons ahead of everybody else in how to control and manipulate people. So the Americans say, Let's not dismantle anything. Let, let's, let's let them do whatever they want, but let's broadcast our television programs there. So you can all just sit and, and vegetate and watch 
I love Lucy reruns in Cairo in Arabic, right? And Uhibba Lucy, right? Bahibbik ya Lucy. I mean, that's what they're doing in Cairo. They actually, it's a big crisis because the Quranic madrasas now, the children can't memorize the Quran because they're memorizing I, run, I Love Lucy reruns, right? I mean, seriously, this is actually happening. They're ha people can't memorize anymore because they sit and watch flickering cathode rays that zap your brain, right? So before you know it, there's, there's no longer any neurological pathways so people can't think anymore and that's why they continue watching it because it gets more and more thoughtless each year because they realize now in Hollywood why produce really expensive stuff when people are so stupid now we can just put anything on there so now they have all these programs where they just run around behind people in 911 right they don't even have to pay for actors or anything they just run around actual real people quote unquote and film them and then people sit and watch these things Right? They watch them. So anyway, what's this have to do with Dawa? <laughs> what it has to do with Dawa is that we're up against very serious competition. <laughs> when we call people to Islam, we're up against I Love Lucy reruns and 911, right? Which is a real concern for people that have to do Dawa. But nobody's doing it, so why even worry about it, right? Well, what it has to do with Dawah is the fact that there's an Arab proverb that has a lot of truth in it and it says, فَاقِدُ شَيْءٍ لَا يُعْطِيهِ Somebody that doesn't have something can't give it, right? Now, Islam is obviously something and according to the Muslim belief, it's the most precious thing. But if you don't have it, you can't give it. Now, if we look at Islam, right? Islam has basic two fundamental aspects to it. The first and we could almost look at it like Meccan and Medina, and it's beautiful, the dichotomy between the two, that, that we've been given Mecca and Medina, and they're very different. Mecca is mountainous, it's rugged, it's harsh, all the people are harsh. Not all of them, but most of them. And Medina is all flat and soft and easy. It's actually, Mecca is called Wa'ar, and, and Medina is called Sahad. One means hard, and the other means easy, soft. And the people in Medina are all easy and soft, right? In Mecca, it's like this guy was trying to do, I was just there, and this guy was, wanted to do Tawaf, right? And he was trying to get through people, and these people from Mecca didn't want him to get through, and told him to go around. And he said, the guy said, just do Tawaf from outside, right? From way out there. Don't, don't go up there. And the guy looks at me and he says, what I, you know, you're like, what a sweet man you are. <laughs> Great sense of humor. So, the point of that little story is that there's this dichotomy. And, and really the way we look at it is there's a personal salvation, right? Which we can look at as the Meccan period. And then there's a social salvation that we can look at as the Medinan period. And Islam dress, addresses both issues. And oddly enough, the personal salvation is more difficult than the social salvation. That's why if you look at Mecca, it's all persecution and, and struggle. And Medina is all victory, right? It's all, it's, really, it became easy once they got to Medina. I mean, they had jihad and they had all this struggle. It was all still there, but it was all sudden, it was different. 
All of a sudden they had what's called izzah in the Arabic language, in the Quranic language, dignity and, you know, Allah raised them up. And the secret of their being raised up is that they were so low and humble, right? That, that's the secret of it. So you can look, Islam has these two aspects. It has the Meccan, which is the personal salvation, which has two aspects to it. That's all. Very simple. The first aspect is what we believe. And you, it can be summed up in... Uh, when the man asked the Prophet for advice, he said, Qul Say, I believe in, in Allah, and then be upright. That's it. That's all there is to it. That is what is called personal Islam. And that is what is ingrained in these people during the Meccan period, is believe in Allah, and then act accordingly. Right? And what happens is, if you do that, you will find that people suddenly become hostile. Right? They become hostile. Why? Because all of a sudden, your actions are actually threatening the status quo. Because if you start acting upright, and everybody else is something else, right? I, the way the jinn put it is so beautiful. Minna salihun wa minna duna dhalik. Right? We have righteous people, and then we have all these other people. Right? So, if you act upright, you will find that people start getting a little uneasy. You see, if the woman puts on the hijab and actually, uh, instead of displaying her sexuality, actually um, covers it and conceals it, all of a sudden people get a little... And they never got worried about nuns. Right? All these nuns, right, wearing this, I mean, it's a hijab, right? The nuns wear a hijab. In fact, they probably got it from the Muslims. But nobody ever got up and said, this is against women's rights, right? Well, of course, they'll say, because the nuns chose that, right? That's what they'll say. Well, didn't, didn't the Muslim women choose it? No, no, no. You see, they've been brainwashed. <laughs> They didn't really, they only think they chose that. But in reality, they didn't choose that. You see, it's just a socialization. Well, what about the nuns? Isn't that kind of a socialization? No, 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 that's something different. Why? Well, because that's Christianity. <laughs> An end of argument, right? Oh, okay. I'm silly of me to even question that. So, there you have it, right? The... If you act upright, you get people upset, which is so odd, right? Because what they say is they want people to act upright. But what they say and what they do, like Mr. Emerson said, your actions shout louder than your words. And the truth of the matter is, we're living in probably the most barbaric society that's ever existed, right? Western civilization. The... I mean, really, what, what's happened, okay, is that, well, let's look at Queen Elizabeth, right, that great bastion of Christianity. Queen Elizabeth had these characters around her that were called corsairs, right, um, what the Arabs called qarasina. And really what the corsairs were, they were pirates. And, and what they did, they went around attacking ships and stealing all their gold and bringing it back and giving a good portion of it to the crown. 
And so it was kind of like a mafia setup. The queen was like the godmother, or whatever you want to call her. And these guys were all these real slimy henchmen. And, but it all looked really good, because she was the defender of the faith, right? Christianity, and they were these knights, which were noble titles. But nonetheless, what they went around doing was pirating people. And this develops, right, into colonization. It started out just as these characters running around pirating the Spanish and saying, well, we really did it because we're at war. But what they were really doing is just pirating. So they go back to England and the English army would actually protect these pirates. And ultimately, the Muslims were kind of this problem because the Muslims were actually... The, and it's interesting because this is what the, the criminal always will say that the society's unjust. That's the nature of the criminal. He has to say that. In the same way that racism is justified because really what it's about is ex exploitation. The same thing. Criminals will say, it's the society that did this to me. Right? That's what they'll do. So what these pirates did is they called the Muslim army, right, which was the Ottoman army, uh, pirates. And they were actually these noble people. Because the Ottoman navy actually patrolled the Mediterranean. And they had tributes, just like now you have tributes, right? Like Saudi Arabia and Kuwait and all these, they just paid a big giant one for this army to go out there and defend their little kingdoms. Whatever you want to call them, shakedoms or something. But it's still, it's the same basic principle. So what happens is, is that this army uh, said, you know, hey, you can't pirate around here. Because we don't believe in this stuff, right? So they, suddenly they said, we've got to find another way to get around to Asia. Because these Muslims are a real pain, right? So they start sending out these, and finally the rest is history, right? They discover this whole thing. So what's happened now is it's become so sophisticated because these pirates now wear three-piece suits. They don't have patches on their eyes anymore. And, but they still have skull and bones, right? George Bush, right? Remember the club? He was a, uh, he's still a member in good standing, right? You have to dig up somebody's bones as your initiation rite. Right? There, somebody said he, his was Geronimo, that that's what he had to do, go dig up Geronimo's bones. So he's a member of the Skull and Bones Club, which is a very elite, secret club. So is Buckley, right? Everybody know that idiot that poses as an intellectual? He has a television program. Oh, you know, he's got this kind of, uh, what do they call it, firing line or something? So. They're all members of the Skull and Bones Club, right? Because that's their old flag. It's the same group. So what they've done is they've solidified all their power, right? And now they work at the level of nations, and actually they've gone beyond that, right? Now they call it the United Nations, which is really just a pirate organization, because they realize that crime doesn't pay, but organized crime does, right? So if we get organized, it, it'll all work out and that's what they did and so here you have it now the Muslims are in this big spider's web right it's been kind of
put out all across the world. It's interesting, all their signs and symbols are spider webs. Have you ever noticed that? The United Nations is a spider's web over the earth. And the CBS, it's a spider's web on an eye, right? It's all spider's webs. I, I mean, I just started to realize, I read a book on spiders. <laughs> it's not funny. I, I read it because I wanted, Allah says that they're like spiders, right? And that's what Allah says. They're like a spider that takes a house. That's what Allah says about these people. So I wanted to understand that metaphor. So I started reading about spiders. And it's amazing that they're just like spiders. It's, it's a beautiful metaphor. Because spiders, one of the things spiders do is that they actually don't eat their victims. They have this poison, they inject in their fangs a poison that's, that, liquef that liquefies the interns of their victims and then they suck all their vital fluids out of them. So all there's left is a shell in this um, spider's web, right? Which is what we call Western civilization. And now the Muslim world, they're just all shells in this spider's web, right? And the spider keeps getting bigger and bigger. And, and every time a victim comes into the web, they have, to, they have the most sophisticated telecommunication system, the spiders, right? They don't need satellites. But it's very similar. They always have a string attached to the web. So anything that touches the web, even if they're sleeping, right, spiders sleep. Even if they're sleeping, the web shakes and they wake up and they run to the web. And if it's a big victim, and they realize they might get out of the web, they have all these um, milking uh, glands, and they squirt all this extra silk onto their victims, so they totally cover them up in this stuff. But if it's just a little one, right, then they just sit, kick back in the White House and just watch it, <laughs> just watch it kind of die. <laughs> Right? So, I mean, seriously, like Iraq was kind of a big victim, right? So they went down there and they like shot out all this stuff and, and got them completely wrapped up. Whereas Bosnia is kind of this, I mean, it's not funny, it's not a joke, but it's a metaphor. Bosnia is this kind of little victim stuck in the web that they, don't, they can just sit back and watch it suffocate, right? From the webs of intrigue that they've created. I mean, it's interesting that this um, Jewish writer wrote the, the, what he called the, about all the, how they armed Iraq. It's called The Spider's Web, right? It's an interesting book to read, The Spider's Web. So that's what they do. So where, where, what's this have to do with Dawah? I know you're all asking that question. It has a lot to do with Dawah. Because what we're dealing with now in, in the Muslim society is a society in turmoil and in really... Decay is, I mean, decay kind of indicates that there's still something alive there, right? I mean, if something's in a decaying state, it's not completely wiped out. But it's almost uh, too easy a word to use. For my, the way I look at the Muslim world, it's like, um, I can't remember his name, but he wrote a book called Coma, where they kept these people alive uh, just in a coma so that they could use their organs. Right? 
And that's what the, the Western powers do to the Muslim world. They keep them just in a comatose state so they can get their oil and get their cotton and get all this, right? Is organ donors. Because they have a dying society up here in the West that's based on consumption. And that's the only thing. See, the meaning of these people's lives is to consume. And if you take that away from them, all of a sudden they're in a complete void. And voids are scary. 80% of Americans that attempt meditation have acute anxiety attacks. <laughs> because they close their eyes and all of a sudden they say, Oh my God, I'm inside myself. <laughs> Give me something to look at, some stimulation. Turn on, quick, turn on the television. Turn on the music, right? Let me look at a billboard. They get very uneasy, right? Because all of a sudden they might have to think about something. Like, why am I here? Why was I created? Where am I going when I die? Right? Those are kind of scary questions for somebody that's never given them an ounce of thought. Right? And they've kind of lived their lives based on the fact that those questions don't exist. I mean, it's very frightening. You see them on their deathbeds, right? I used to work in a critical care unit and watch them die. I don't want to die. I don't want to die. I saw that many times. Why? Because that's the way they've lived their lives, you see. They're frightened. They're scared. You know, and what Islam is about is about taking away fear. See, if you're a Muslim, what are you afraid of? Right? Because the, fir the first thing that you accept as a Muslim, the very first thing, there's no God but Allah. Which means there's nothing that I should have any fear of except God. And therefore everything else becomes secondary. Death is a secondary. See, if you believe in God, if you believe in the fact that you were created for a purpose and that you're going somewhere and it all has meaning, then all of a sudden everything becomes secondary to that primary fact, which it is a fact. You see, I mean, the Prophet said, إِنَّ الْجَنَّةَ حَقْ It's all haq, it's all true. The fire is true. The jannah, the garden is true. The day of... Rising in judgment is true. The mizan, the balance is true. Going into these things. So really, getting back to this, what we're calling people to, first of all, we have to call ourselves. That's the first thing. Right? We have to call ourselves every day. I mean, you have to be giving dawah to yourself constantly. Every day of your life. It doesn't stop. You become Muslim, that's... People, I've seen people, they become Muslim and I tell them, some people kind of get upset when I explain Islam to them. People that have become Muslim that I've given shahada to. And people around it say, why would you tell them all that stuff? It's so heavy, right? Because well, it's better they stay out of the house, right, than come in and be a foul guest, right? And if you don't want to observe the manners of the house, don't come into the house. Because the house has manners. And the house has a Lord. He's called Rabbul Bayt. And if you come into Darul Islam, into the abode of Islam, you better observe the manners of the house. And the manners of the house came from the Lord of the house. And if you don't want to observe them, get out of the house. Because you're just fouling up the house. And that's what's happened all over the Muslim world. You have these people 
that are claiming they're in the house, right? But they don't use the toilet. They urinate wherever they want to, right? They, they uh, leave the food all over the place just to rot. So give the house a stench. And then people that see the house think, you know, it's like somebody that looks at a mansion that's totally dilapidated, right? And they think, I wouldn't want to live there, right? As a beautiful, it looks like it was a beautiful thing at one time. I mean, that's the way people look at Islam now. If you hear Orientals talk about Islam, the golden years of Islam, right? That's what they talk about, the golden years of Islam. Because now they look at it, it's just like a mansion in total uh, dilapidation, right? So what, what we want to do is, is find out where the carpenters are to rebuild this thing, right? Because it's there, all the blueprint. I mean, what we have now, that house is gone, right? What they call the golden years, it's over. Tilk al-umam qad khalat. Laha kasabat those people, they're gone. They have what they earn, and you have what you earn. You see, they're gone. We can't live off them anymore. It's no longer um, viable. But what we have is we have a vision of what it was once at one time, but we also have an intact blueprint. And what we need is a critical mass of people that will take on this deen personally take on it as individuals, and then call other people to it, you see. We have to rectify our homes. We have to rectify our character. We have to become people of istiqama, of uprightness. And if we're not, we can't call anybody to anything, because we don't have anything to call people to. It's an empty call, you see. And Dawah is not an empty call. I mean, Dawah is a call to the house, to the abode of Islam. It's calling people, enter into the abode. And right now, my sustenance, and I'm sure many of your sustenance, is a personal sustenance. Because we're not living social Islam. You see, I would love to be living social Islam. I would love to be living in a society where there weren't thieves, because people don't need to steal. Where there weren't drugs, because people don't have need to get out of their state and into a state that puts them into a sense of oblivion, where they don't have to think about the problems of their lives. You see, where women aren't beaten in their homes because they have recourse to ways of solving their marital disputes and their troubles that are humane and that are based on justice and wisdom. You see, I mean, that's, that's the society that I yearn for, is a society where people can live Islam, where knowledge is the highest and most primary uh, function of the human being to acquire knowledge and to worship based on that knowledge acquired. Al-Bukhari has a chapter in his great um, opus that's called Bab al-ilm qabla al-qawli wal-amal the chapter of knowledge before speaking and action see because Islam is based on knowledge the first thing that comes down in the Quran is iqra bismi rabbika alladhi khalaq read that's the first thing that comes down. Read what? In the name of your Lord. Learn knowledge in the name of your Lord. Learn knowledge because Allah has... Don't learn knowledge to make more money, right? Don't learn knowledge to get a degree. Don't learn knowledge so that 
You can go work for a corporation that's developing new and improved ways of killing people. Learn knowledge because you are commanded to learn knowledge. And then apply that knowledge. And then take that knowledge out to other people. And that's what Islam is about. It's a very fundamental call back to the way of Ibrahim to the way of the Hanif. And Ibrahim was a simple man living in the midst of a desert in a tent. <laughs> but he had the deepest spiritual experience of anyone in his time. You see? Because he was a Hanif. He was a, a man who... Hanif is an upright man. It's a man that believes in the deen of fitrah, the inherent religion of man and woman, which is Islam, and acts upright. And that is Ibrahim. And our call is to the way of Ibrahim, as it was finalized in the way of Muhammad And that's the call of the Muslims. And it's the call of truth. And the people that hear it and respond to it will be the people whose hearts have that mule, have that Hanafiya, you see. And they're out there. They have to be. I don't believe that they're not. And we have to go find them. That's your job in Toronto. Okay. They're out there. They must be. I don't believe they're not. Because this is the fitrah. It's the inherent nature. People will never be happy until they submit to Allah. And people won't be happy until they know why they were created. And the Quran tells us to worship Him, to adore Him, to love Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. I mean, that's what it's about. So we have that individual Islam, and that's all we have now. Darul Islam, the abode of Islam, has been reduced to your own body. You are Darul Islam now. There is no longer this integral thing that we can call Darul Islam and this other thing that we can call Darul Harb. This is a time when, as the Arabs say, Akhtalat al-Habr bin Nabil. Everything's mixed up. Nothing's clear anymore. I mean, that's the truth of the matter. And the only thing that is clear, right, is the vision of this teaching. Because it's still there and it's still intact and it's there for the one that takes it up. But it has certain conditions. And just to say a few things about the conditions. The first condition is sincerity. وَمَا أُمِرُوا إِلَّا لِيَعْبُدَ اللَّهِ they were only commanded to worship Allah with sincerity, with ikhlas. Lahuddin. The deen is for Allah. It's not for you. It's not a personal way of uh, being better than other people. It's not a way of banging people over the heads with hadith or ayahs of verses of Quran. You see, which some people do. They take, the deen becomes this tool whereby I can become a petty tyrant. In the same way that Saddam Hussein is a big tyrant. Right? So I can beat people over the head with hadith. The, the, the teaching is a teaching of tabshir. It's not a teaching of tanfir. It's a teaching of calling people in the best way. Of calling people back to their own selves. You see, of the real true nature which is submission. That is the true nature of man, is to be in submission to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is what the call is. It's a call to that bushra, that good news. That if you submit to Allah, if from a believer, or a male or a female, huh? whoever does a righteous action after their belief, right? from male or female, and they have iman, then Allah tells us, We will bring to life for them a beautiful and pure life. 
You see, so even in the midst of all this turmoil, those people who have that individual sense of Islam will have a hayatayiba, a pure and beautiful life. And that will be able to sustain them through this time because we're in times of sabr. We're in the time that the Prophet ﷺ said, holding on to Islam is like holding on to a coal of fire. That's what it's like. You see, and Islam is about sabr. Inna Allah ma'asabirin. And da'wah is about learning sabr, about learning patience, about learning how to interact with people, about learning how to subjugate the nafs, about learning how to uh, become humble. And it's difficult, and it's a journey, and we're all on it, you see. None of us have arrived. We arrive when we die. And the whole thing is a process of becoming better and better, you see. I wish Islam was a coat that you could buy in a store and just put it on, and all of a sudden you're a Muslim. But it's not. It's not acquired with ease. It's painfully acquired. And so uh, I'm just been given the warning from the moderator. <laughs> That's nice. Usually it says 10 minutes. Usually they say 22 seconds left, right? <laughs> I won't mention any places where I've had that happen to me. So, I'm, well, I'm going to just cut it here because... Um, my thoughts have been a little uh, disconnected, right? We're, we're, like I said, it's, it's an age of disintegration. So my talk was a little disintegrated. But it just has to do, I'm using excuses, right? The Arabs, they say, Like these excuses worse than the, what you did wrong. So I'm just going to stop it here, and if people have questions, I'm going to remain standing, because I'll probably fall asleep if I sit down. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم إنسان. oh okay we're gonna so we're gonna take a break. الحمد لله. we're going to have a 15 minute break. there's refreshments outside. there should be some downstairs and upstairs as well I hope. take time to look at the different displays we have. And uh, we have some books and video tapes as well. Uh, some of them they use this uh, video tapes are also available in the back there. And inshallah, 15 minutes, we'll call you back. Call to Islam and ridicule Christianity and Christians while addressing an audience in the bastion of Christian learning in Canada, University of Toronto. Dawah is not a form to ridicule anyone. Aminullah. Well, My uh, background, I was actually raised a Greek Orthodox, and Greek Orthodox are cruel and mean people. <laughs> right? They're the ones that are bombing Sarajevo. Um, so I've still got some of that cruel and mean streak in me. Uh, I, I went to Catholic Jesuit schools as well. so. 
part of my distaste for modern Christianity is my experience with it. But I'm not, certainly not speaking as a, somebody that was born Muslim, right, and then like Ahmadidat, right, everybody's favorite <laughs> critique of Christianity. Um, but I, I accept that as a, uh, a criticism. The, because it's, it's a question, but it's really a criticism. And uh, I accept that. And it's, it's not good to ridicule people or other religions. And, uh, but on one hand, <laughs> I'm going to get nasty now. Um, the Quran says, Like, fight them the way they fight you, right? And I've read so many books written by fundamental Christians. I've actually got about 15 of them in my library. And I've read quite a few of them. One, because you can read them about 10 minutes. Um, and two, because it's important um, to know your enemy. And I do say enemy because these people are really... Uh, very um, adamantly against Islam. Um, one of them is Sharush's book. I don't know if any of you know that man, but uh, he's a Palestinian Christian who purposely um, ridicules Islam, um, purposely makes fun of uh, the Quran, and uh, says terrible things. Another one is called The Islamic Invasion, which was written by um, so-called PhD in Islamic Studies. Uh, I don't know what PhD stands for in that case. Uh, and one of the things in there, just to give you an example of what this guy says. Uh, unlike Christianity, the Muslims believe in a cruel God. Right? Nowhere in the Quran is the love of God displayed. Right? And another one of the things he says, Allah is really the name of a moon goddess. Right? And that's why the Muslims worship the Kaaba which has a rock there that they believe came from the moon <laughs> right? that was once white, right, the color of the moon, now it's black so I've read a lot of those books, they make me very angry and sometimes that anger manifests a little bit but I, I do accept the, the general criticism um, I will say the Quran does honor the people of the book, Ahlul Kitab um, particularly the Christians but even the Jews in the sense that that they're people of a book, a true book. What, what exists now, the Torah, right, and the Injil, the, uh, that the Quran talks about, no longer exist. What exists now are books that have been grossly altered, right? So the, and, and so when I was talking about what the, the, if you read the Bible, and I have read the Bible, a lot of people have not read the Bible. In fact, somebody called me the other day and said that, he had written an article for the uh, newspaper in California and one of the things that he'd said was uh, you know that Muslims do not force other people to become Muslims there's no coercion, right? there's no coercion in the deen um, and so this person wrote back a rebuttal to this same newspaper and said you can say that but the truth of the matter is your book says kill them wherever you find them right? and there is a verse in the Quran that actually does say that right? <laughs> but the Quran if you look the Quran says right? woe to those who pray 
Beware of those who pray, right? Woe to those who pray. So if I quote that to you, now you would automatically think, if you'd never heard the Qur'an, so the Qur'an obviously is against praying, right? Well, you have to finish the ayah, right? الَّذِينَ هُمْ فِي صَلَاتِهِمْ سَاهُونَ Those that are heedless in their prayers. In other words, the hypocrites. So the Qur'an has to be taken in context. If you take it out of context, then you lose the meaning. And so that's what this person did. He took a verse out of contextual context, and, or thematic context, and then it looks one thing. So I wrote back for him a letter, and I quoted Psalm 138, right, which says, Smash the babies of Iraq's heads up against the... Blessed are those who smash the babies of Iraq's heads up against the or the baby's heads of Iraq up against the rocks of Zion, right? So I said, obviously the Bible is calling us to smash Iraqi babies' heads up against rocks, which looks like scriptural justification for desert storm. So, and then the other one, which is, if you really want to read the interesting section of the Bible, is Deuteronomy. So I'm, after accepting the criticism, here I am ridiculing this book, so... I apologize for that. Anyway, my, you know, Christians, there are genuine, genuinely devout Christians, good people. I believe that. In fact, one of the difficulties I had um, after becoming Muslim was the fact that um, I have met Christians that I really believe were totally uh, genuine in their love for God. And, and I just had the difficulty with understanding that and things like inna deen and Allah Islam. And actually Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyah solved the, that difficulty for me in his book called Al-Jawab al-Kafi, which is the complete answer. And in that book he says that, that there are different types of love. And he said that there's love of God. And he said, but this love is not enough. And it's the love that Christians and Jews and uh, idol worshippers have for God. And so what he was indicating there was that Christians, Jews, and idol worshippers can actually love God. Which to me, it kind of it made sense for me in, ex in understanding how I have met people from different faiths who have a genuine love of God. Uh, but what he says is that what is needed is love of what Allah loves. Not simply love of Allah, but love of what Allah loves. And hate of what Allah hates. And that is called Sharia. Right? That is the, the, the code whereby the human being acts according to uh, the way that Allah has commanded uh, the person to act. And so Mm, I, I would say that, that I, I do apologize if I, I offended anybody in here that is Christian. Um, I, we're in a, I, I really think, in the, particularly in the West, in a post-Christian era, um, I think the religion has... Uh, it's very difficult for um, Christians to actually be a moral authority or a moral voice because of what's happened to their religion and certainly what's happened to the leaders of their religion. And those televangelists that I ridiculed, I think any devout, true Christian would 
ridicule them as well because they're an object of ridicule. Um, they're the worst type of people and because they exploit people's spiritual needs and I'm certainly opposed to that. So I apologize and I, and I accept that, uh, that criticism. Um, any other question? Can I just ask, anyone who has a question in the floor, we have two microphones, so please feel free to come to that microphone and ask that microphone to the brothers. We have a few more written questions here. Um, I'll take your question from the floor first. Assalamu alaikum. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. question is uh, related to the issue of doubt. Uh-huh. Uh, a lot of the uh, Muslim Jews who come from Arab countries or African countries, they get to marry you know, Muslim girls. And uh, those girls, they get to convince them that they are Muslims so that they get married because, you know, these Muslim youths are good, they make good husbands, they're, they're well behaved. And then after a little while, uh, my Muslim brother naively thinks that he is uh, marrying a good wife and then after a few weeks she's back with her family to church. And the poor man is so, so, uh, so much devastated, frustrated. Uh, almost to the point that he might get uh, like crazy or something. Hmm. So we understand that it is allowable in Islam to get married to non-Muslims. But if you would get to that point, don't we think that it's not good to do? We better off uh, get married to a good Muslim girl and maintain a strong Islamic family, a Muslim family, instead of that. Uh, what's your opinion about Seek refuge in Allah from opinions. Um, I, I think it's a big, it's a big social crisis that a lot of Muslims do come to these countries, and certainly youth come. And, and there's a what what. Uh, the big new Brzezinski calls. I, I always wonder about, you know, there's a lot of Americans that say, I go ridicule. I can ridicule them because I'm an American. <laughs> uh, a lot of Americans say, uh, so what's your name? Uh, Abdul Aziz. Abdul what? <laughs> right? But they can get the big new Brzezinski and Arnold Schwarzenegger. <laughs> well, if you give them a name like Abdul Aziz, they say, Abdul what? <laughs> Look, I'll just call you Abdul. And you're kind of like, well, actually, that means slave, right? <laughs> so I'm not a slave. I'm the slave of Al-Aziz, right? Which they don't say. They end up saying, okay. And so that you get Abdul, right, working at whatever they're working at. Or they change it to Mike or something like that. Make it easier. Just call. I have, and I won't say that. Now I, I, I got to watch it now because I feel a little self-conscious. Um, oh, just let me try to finish that question. The, one of the big troubles is that the foundation of marriage in Islam is an acceptance right, of Allah and His Messenger. I mean, that is what is going to maintain a marriage. If you don't have recourse to some absolute source, right, or fundamental values, uh, well, Chalk that word, erase that word, fundamental. <laughs> Take it back, I didn't say that. If you don't have recourse to values, right, or some absolutes, then there'll be troubles. And uh, Islam 
really should be that, that source. So if you marry a Christian or a Jewish woman um, from the people of the book, which according to the Quran is permissible, although there are some strong opinions that it's, it's not permissible to marry Christians. Uh, that was Abdullah ibn Umar's opinion, radiallahu anhu, his great faqih from Medina, and the son of Umar ibn al-Khattab. And in fact, Sheikh Abdullah al-Ghimari, great Moroccan scholar of this age, actually wrote a book against it, saying, and, and his proofs, um, I think he does it from, there's an usuli principle called sadda al-dharaya, which is like cutting off the pretext. And what he considered was, if you were in a Muslim society, and the, the woman was Christian, um, that should you die, for instance, then the society would take it upon themselves to make sure that your children were raised as Muslims. Whereas if you're in a Christian society, you see, and you marry a Christian woman, and you happen to die, which is certainly a possibility, um, then she could raise your children Christian. Right? And you don't have any way of preventing that. And so that was his opinion about that. Uh, I personally think some of the finest Muslims that I have met have been women that have converted um, to Islam. There are some very strong Muslim sisters that have converted from Christianity and Judaism and other religions to Islam. And I would certainly make that um, a condition before I married, uh, for that reason, for the children. Uh, so that, that's, that's where I, I, I stand about that. I'm a 19-year-old student who is very confused with whether I should get a university education or fight for jihad. Hmm. Um, okay. Can you elaborate on the disparity of secular education and religious education, how they can be merged? Um... Yeah. Well, G that that's a very long answer <laughs> because uh, you have to go into really about jihad and 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 what jihad is and what the prerequisites for that. One of the basic principles of jihad, though, especially at your age, would be taking permission from your family and. Um, the other thing about, you know, a lot of where there are Muslim crises, the, the, the problem is not actual numbers of people, but it's actually um, basically get down to military hardware and logistical needs. I mean, the Bosnians have vastly outnumber the Serbs, but they're completely unarmed, you see. So the crisis there is not a number of people. And the same was true in Afghanistan. You know, I was in Peshawar during when the Russians were still there, and, and that was one of the things that they told me, there's plenty of people. It's, it's about weapons, hardware. And uh, Kashmir is the similar situation, and uh, the Philippines, Eritrea. I mean, what we have is really not a shortage of manpower, but we have a shortage. One, we don't have true leadership. In other words, there's no governments that are supporting the, the besieged Muslims wherever they are. And two, um, there, there's just not weapons, right? So, 
I, yeah, you have to just think about that. Can you elaborate on the disparity of secular education and religious education, how they can be merged? Well, I was saying to somebody earlier that there's an Islamic, in, in, really in an Islamic society there would be no such thing as secular education. It, it doesn't exist. Because there's no such thing as secular knowledge. There's only fard ayn and fard kifaya. Any knowledge is either classified as ayn, a kifaya, makru, or muharram. Right? And that's all there is. So, for instance, uh, fard ayn would be you have to learn how to pray. Everybody has to know how to pray. If you go to Umrah, you have to know how to do Umrah. I'll give you an example. At the Kaaba, there's all these people that go around Kaaba, and they're in Ihram, and they're going, and they, they'll go along touching the Kaaba as they make the tawaf, which breaks your shalt, right? Your, your circumambulation around the Kaaba. It actually breaks it, right? If you touch Kaaba. Because you're inside the Kaaba, because there's this marble uh, layer that goes out. It's called Shadarwan, and it's actually part of the Kaaba, right? The original foundations of Ibrahim, and, and Tawaf going is around the Kaaba. So if you go in, you're actually part of your body is inside the Kaaba. So it invalidates your shalt. Right? Now some people can say, well, you're picking hairs there, but you're not, because that's the nature of Sharia. You have things that you do and things that you don't do. That's all Sharia is, awamr and nawahi. It's commands and prohibitions. And so you have to, if you go on Umrah, it becomes fardain upon you to learn how to do Umrah. You can't go there with a book, and as you get there to the black stone, you start looking, now how do I do this? It shouldn't be to that point. And you see people like that during Hajj. They're trying to work out how to do their Hajj when they should have learned it back home. So that's a Farba'in. Right? If you buy and sell, you have to learn the rules of buying and selling. You cannot do anything without knowing how to do it. And it's an important element of our teaching, is to learn what Allah has commanded you to do. Omar used to go into the suq, into the marketplace, and he would actually test people. Right? It's called, um, nowadays they call it quality assurance. Right? I mean, the Muslims have that concept in our deen, in the sharia. He used to go in and he used to pull the dates off the top to see if the ones underneath were as good as the ones on top. And if they weren't, he would tell them that you're rash, you know, that you're cheating people, right? It's like you go to the Safeway. Uh, do you have Safeway in Canada? No? Okay. In, I saw in Saudi Arabia, safest way, right? <laughs> and it had the big S. It was just like Safeway, right? But it's called safest way. Some poor Saudi guy went to school in California and went back and said, I want to make something just like America. So, <laughs> safest way. Because there was probably some legalistic problems with <laughs> calling it Safeway. So, but there they always have the big strawberries on the top, big giant ones. And then if you actually, when you buy it and then pull off the top, you'll all the ones at the bottom are squashed and small. That's the same principle, right? It's, it's The one that cheats us isn't from us. So, that's what Umar used to do, right? So you have to learn those things. Now, the other knowledges are called like um, medicine is a religious knowledge because it's an obligation on some people to learn it. So it's not secular. It is by its nature religious because Muslims don't have a concept of secular. See, the Christians, and I'll try to watch myself here. 
the Christians split the religion at a point when they say that Jesus said, and I don't believe it, but they say that Jesus said, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's and give unto God what is God. Now, I don't believe a prophet would say that because we don't believe anything is for Caesar. We say, everything is Allah's. So how can you give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's? Everything is God's. Right? So, but that verse in the New Testament is the verse that's used to split church and state. Right? Now, we don't have that problem because one, we don't have a church. There's no church. And two, we don't really have a state. Right? So it's a, it's a, it's a Christian problem. Church and state. Muslims have what's called a dola, which is actually a later, um, it, you know, it's a, it's a later invention of the fuqaha to call dola in the ahkam al-sir, like diplomatic uh, rules. The dola is the opposite of state. State comes from a Latin word which means status, right? Which is staying the same. We get static from it, like static, the status quo. The way things are. Dola actually means the thing that's constantly changing. So it's really the opposite of a state. One, because what states do is they hoard wealth, right? What the Islamic government does is it gives wealth out. There's no hoarding. In fact, zakat has to be redistributed immediately. It has to go back into the community. And it, by Islamic law, it's supposed to be gathered in the community and redistributed back into the very same community. There's no centralization of power in Islamic law. There's no Washington, D.C. Right? That is a totally... What there is, is there is a khalifa, which is a... really a... a, a, a it's a represent, uh, representation of the prophetic hub whereby everything revolves around it, you see. That's what it is. He is the Khalifa of who? Of the Messenger of Allah. That's what the Khalifa is. If he obeys him, we obey him. If he disobeys him, we don't disobey, you see. So our hearing and obeying is based on his hearing and obeying, right? And so if he's not hearing and he's not obeying, then we don't listen to him and we don't obey him. And that's from Omar when he took out, he, he gave a khutbah, a talk to some people. And he said, what would you do if Omar started going crooked? And one of the sahaba pulled his sword out and said, I'd straighten you with this. And... So Omar said, Alhamdulillah, there's still people in this ummah that would straighten Omar if he went crooked. So he was just checking. That's what they call a checks and balance system, right? In Washington, you have Congress and the President. That's a checks and balance. You have to have that system. So Omar was giving us the concept of checks and balances, you see, to remind us future generations. If he starts going astray, we have to straighten him out, right? Now, what happens when everybody goes crooked? That's the problem. So, I have a reputation of giving very long answers. <laughs> All right, go ahead. Okay, yeah. Right on the left there. Okay. Alaikum, salam, wa rahmatullah. I first would like to. Uh, 
thank you, brother, for uh, your good coverage of the historical fact, factors that uh, were somehow led to the, uh, the decline of the Muslim Ummah. It's not the only factor. Right, well, it's very complicated. Yeah. Now, uh, my point was that when you uh, talked about Dawah and you um, divided it up in Mecca and Medina and you probably made some uh, um, comparison between what happened then and what could probably be our situation now. Hmm. Uh, Allah says in the Quran, وَمَا أَتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُدُوهُ لَا أَرْحِمُ وَمَا أَتَاكُمُ الرَّسُولُ فَخُدُوهُ وَمَا أَنَاهَاكُمْ عَنْهُ فَانْتَهُ Whatever the Prophet ﷺ has given you to take, whatever he's uh, forbidden, forbidden. Yeah, you abstain. Mm -hmm. That includes everything and it includes the method, the tariqah with which we call for Islam and Dawah. Uh, it just felt or seemed that you've isolated that what da'wah is now is just to look at, at yourself and build yourself, your Muslim personality and uh, look at other personality like it's individualistic, it's more, it doesn't, it's linked, it has no links to the societal level because if you, the sum of individuals doesn't make a society. Uh, and if we have a hundred, you know, if we have a hundred percent Muslim individuals, it doesn't necessarily make fight that itself in, in itself uh -huh. a Muslim society or a Muslim dawla mm -hmm. or a government. Right. So there must be, as we see in the seerah of the Prophet from earlier times in Mecca, his messengers to leaders of the greatest nations then, like Kisra and, and Hirakal, and uh, he asked them to get into Islam. And he also went around the child around Mecca asking him to get and to give him rule, to give him to rule by Allah's rules and Allah's sharia. Uh, some of them gave them gave him conditional rule, he rejected it. So he was after something. The idea is that there is a method he outlined for us. Somebody and we can see clearly in the seerah. And alhamdulillah, we have many Muslims here, Muslim brothers, I think are a bit uh, knowledgeable about the seerah and can see things, who can read and see it more. Uh, maybe uh, if you can outline it much stronger, well, because it felt like it's only individualism. No, only no, I just, the, when I talk, yeah. I try to talk to the audience I'm speaking to. People have, there's called marata to taklif, right? Yeah. And, and people have different taklif, which is your, um, your responsibility. There's different responsibilities. For the vast majority of people, they are not responsible for, um, for instance, the rulers, the people that are to rectify the rulers are the ulama. Right? These are the people that have to rectify the rulers. That's why the Prophet ﷺ said that the greatest jihad, a'lamu jihad and kirimat al-haq amam sultan and ja'ir. The biggest jihad is actually da'wah. It's a word. It's not fighting or anything. The biggest jihad is speaking the truth in front of an unjust ruler. The people that speak the truth are the people that have what are called hujaj and barahin. They're the people of proofs and of sound arguments. And those are the ulama, you see. And that's why all of the early communities said that the facade of dunya, right, the the destruction of the world is with the destruction of the ulama and the umara. Because 
the ulama and the umrah have to have this relationship. One has to be rectifying the other. You see? And if they don't, then you get uh, disintegration, which is what's happened in our societies now. We, most of the ulama have aligned themselves with unjust rulers. And so they have lost their status within the Muslim societies. People really don't listen to them because they see them sitting next to Pharaoh. And if you're sitting next to Pharaoh, you're in bad company. Right? So, um, my point is, is that I, you know, I've been Muslim now almost 18 years, and I've heard a lot since the time I became Muslim until now. And what I've recognized is that, that there's a lot of talk, and talk is very cheap. And you can sit around in cafes and discuss about the way things should be, but if people aren't changing some very fundamental things, which is not to ignore other aspects, you see, but the rectification of societies um, takes place from those people that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given them the intellectual gifts and the, the um, spiritual gifts for that trans transformation. The vast majority of people don't have those, um, the tools, right, adawat, the tools of that um, change, which is to actually change um, not just themselves, but to change the society. People, you know, what are called the awam, which I consider myself from them, are the, the simple people, right, that don't have the deep knowledge that's necessary to um, present blueprints and present. We have Muslims working very hard, not just in the Muslim world, but outside the Muslim world, for change at the highest levels. Do you see? And they have that taklif, and they exist, and there's movements that have been going on for a long time to bring about those change. Do you see what I mean? Did you follow that? Yeah. So our, you know, Muslims should support those that are working um, towards that change. I personally, um, the, the Islam that I studied was, um, I studied with very classical scholars, mostly from Mauritania, and um, my understanding of Islam is that um, Islam is not a revolutionary uh, type of teaching because khuruj ana sulta, what's called khuruj ana sulta in the rules of fiqh, like going out and actually opposing the um, government and things like that violently, um, there have to be very specific conditions present for that to take place. And those are fiqh details that we could go into here. So, Islam is a total picture, and I'm not trying to say that it's one isolated aspect. What I'm saying is that is the beginning point for us as individuals. And if we have not begun there, then there's no point in trying to get somewhere else. You see, you have to start, you know, everything uh, starts with steps. You know, a child first uh, learns to crawl, and then it learns to walk, and then it learns to run. And that's the nature of growth. It's progressive. The, 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 there's this Arabic saying that says, um, The food of the giants is poison for the little ones, right? The food of adults is poisonous for uh, babies. You can't feed babies meat, you see. But just one comment here. Yeah, it's <laughs> Just that when Musa bin Umayr was attempted to get it, then it was then called Medina. Later. Yeah. 
he prepared the society, he prepared the base, not necessarily of ulama. Yeah, where's Mus'ab? <laughs> that's what we want, Mus'ab. <laughs> yeah, that's what we want, Mus'ab, Ibn Umar. Alhamdulillah. Nobody's, I wouldn't be here if I lost hope. <laughs> I'd be at home with my family, <laughs> sleeping. <laughs> yeah, but who prepared Mus'ab? <laughs> Mus'ab didn't come out of a vacuum. Yeah, Mus'ab had very serious training. Like the ulama, you see, they talk about degrees of da'wah. The first degree is called tabligh, uh, right? which is actually where individuals who have taken it actually go out and spread the message. The second degree is called taqween, right? Which is where you, the people that accept the message then are molded into actual real characteristics of that message. And then the final stage is tamkeen, which is when Allah and that's a promise in the Qur'an. But there's what's called in the Qur'an a jumla haliya in the Arabic language, which is a sentence of state. In other words, if the condition exists, then that thing exists. And in the ayat of Tamkeen that Allah says, Right? He will establish you in the earth. They worship Allah and they do not associate anything with Him. That is the jumla haliya that Allah promises. If that exists, the other thing exists. If you look at the Quran, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Ya ladina amanu, attaqullah wa qulu qawlan sadida. Oh, you who believe. Have taqwa, have conscious awareness of Allah. Right? And say truthful things. Be upright in your speech. In other words, have the awareness of Allah. And taqwa is behavioral. It's not i'tiqad. Taqwa is not the way you think. It's the way you act. In other words, behave like a Muslim and speak like a Muslim. Now look at the, what's called the, the result of that. Right? Yuslih lakum a'malakum. He rectifies your state. يُصْلَحْ لَكُمْ عَمَارِكُمْ وَيَغْفِرْ لَكُمْ ذُنُوبَكُمْ And He will forgive all of your wrong actions. So, in other words, your worldly affairs are rectified and your other worldly affairs are rectified. And then Allah tells us, إِنَّا عَرَضْنَا الْأَمَانَةَ عَلَى السَّمَوَاتِ وَالْأَرْضِ وَالْجِبَالِ That He has given this amana. And the amana here, the trust that Allah put forward to the heavens, the earth, and the mountains, and that they refused it, and man took it on, is the takalif, the shara'iyah. It is the responsibility of implementing this teaching in our lives and in ourselves. And if we do that, if people get up at night and call on Allah, and do these things, that is primary, that's all I'm saying. If you're not doing that, don't expect anything else to happen, which is not negating the other things. Allah says in the Quran, وَعِدُّ مَسْتَطَعْتُ مِنْ قُوَّةِ وَمِنْ رِبَاطِ الْخَيْلِ I mean, all these things exist. Prepare with power and strength and horses and which could be read what, you know, the means, the necessary means. But see, somebody told me once that, you see, if we were military, had military strength in Bosnia, this would have never happened. That is a fallacious argument, right, in logic. That is a fallacious argument. Because if Allah wants, Allah could have got the Serbs and the Croats killing each other. And then after they all killed everybody, there would just be Muslims there, they have their country and everything. I mean, it's not based on material, you can't interpret things materialistically. 
You see, our deen is based on the, the second principle in the deen is the iman bil ghaib. Alladina yu'minuna billah, they believe in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and in the ghaib. They believe in the unseen. So we, there's other elements acting and happening in creation that we don't see, that we're not um, consciously aware of, but that are taking place. So rectification, that's all I'm saying, is rectification begins first with the self. If that's not taking place, then all of the other things that extend from that are of no benefit, you see. And if Allah does not give us success, then we have to go back and look at why. And the Muslims have not had success. We have not had success in terms of tamkeen. There's been success, alhamdulillah, in people returning to the deen and these things. And it's happening, and it's happening in the time that Allah wills it to happen. The other thing that uh, one of the North African scholars, Ahmed Zarruq, said, is that one of the great tribulations of our time, and he said this in the 19th, 9th century, is that people, he said, يَسْتَعْجِلُونَ الْفَتْحِ دُونَ شُرُوطِهِ That they try to hurry the victory or the opening without having the conditions. And each one of the stations, right, of the tabligh, taqween, and the tamkeen, they have conditions. For instance, in Afghanistan, shurut al-nasr were there, but shurut al-tamkeen were not there. You see, the conditions of victory were there, but the conditions for establishment were not there. And they are, you can look at them. The, our scholars have enunciated them very clearly from the Qur'an. You see, one of the most beautiful books, and I recommend that you read it, is Al-Jawab al-Kafi by Ibn Qayyim al-Jawziyak because he talks about what is wrong with the society and his basic and fundamental analysis is is it is the wrong actions of the individuals that compose that society and until that is rectified until there are not kabair in our societies there, everything's going to remain the same you see it stays the same because this is the sunnah of this is the way of the divine way that has no change you see, Allah says that in the Qur'an. If you read the Qur'an with ta'amud, with, with reflection and depth, it becomes very clear why societies are destroyed and how they're rectified. You see, and, and we should never forget that Islam is not a ideology. Islam is not an ideology. It's not a political ideology like communism or capitalism or something like that. Islam is a deep transformative spiritual power that transforms the individual and transforms the society. It has political aspects, it has social aspects, it has all these aspects, but that is its fundamental power. You see, the power of Islam is in the power of personal transformation. That is the power of Islam. And personal transformation leads to social transformation. That is the sunnah of Allah. You cannot create social transformation without personal transformation. That is not the sunnah of Allah. And you can find that in the Quran and in the sunnah of the Prophet You see, you should do it. I mean, your first victory every day is Fajr. You see, but even higher than that is Qiyam al-Layl. But the victory over shaitan, the first victory that begins every day is Fajr. You see, if you did not win that battle, you lost the first battle of the day. One down and several to go. That's what Shaitan says. <laughs> we got him there, so everything else is going to be a little easier. But if you got up for Fajr, Rahima Anfu Shaitan, his nose is in the dust. You see, and then he's a little worried. He got up for Fajr. I'm going to have difficulty today. 
And that's the way it goes. So there's a personal jihad that has to take place. If that's not taking place, forget about the big battles. I mean, look at, there's a great story when the, the Muslims were in Egypt, and they surrounded a, uh, a city there, and they were fighting, and they weren't getting any victory. And so the Amir sent out to find out, were they praying the prayers all the time? Were they doing everything? And they said, the, the, um, the soldier came back and told him, everything's doing, they're getting up, doing night prayers, everything. The only thing, they're not doing cleaning their teeth before the prayers because there's no siwak, right? There's no sticks. So he said, go and get, find some tree branches and bring them back. And so they made these, so all the Muslim soldiers started cleaning their teeth and these Egyptians looked down from the fort, right? And they said, the Muslims sharpening their teeth, they're getting ready to eat us, right? And it created such fear in these people, they just surrendered, you know. <laughs> okay, um, I'd like to go on to the next question. Uh, uh, um, this is a question from the sisters. Uh, in terms of Islamic courses offered a youth key, and these are set out to destroy the youth at school uh, that, that take the courses. Um, it's worse for Muslim students who don't know much about the religion to begin with. Yeah. Can I have your opinion on how to change this? Uh, on these courses here? Yeah. Um, it's really dangerous to take a university course on Islam. Because, because most of the people teaching them uh, are either wittingly or unwittingly undermining Islam. I mean, that's the truth. You can't learn your deen from your enemy. Right? I mean, you, you can't. It's stupid. It's like... It's like going to uh, somebody that would love to see you die for medical treatment, right? You know? And we, the result of it is Salman Rushdie. That's what you get. That's a result of getting a degree in Islamic history from Cambridge. Because <laughs> that's what he did. And I think he might have even generally wanted to find out about his religion at one point in his life. Because he said that. I've read um, s some interviews with him and, and he went through a period where he wanted to rediscover Islam. So he decided to take courses at Cambridge and the rest is history. Right? Because all that crap that he came up with is from medieval Orientalists that made it all up. I mean, Thomas Carlyle, who, even though Muslims constantly quote him in these books, like heroes and hero worship, Thomas Carlyle, and they always take him out of context, because he says terrible things about the Prophet Sallallahu but then he also says some really nice things. So they put all the nice things that he says, right? And they don't mention all that other stuff. But one of the things Thomas Carlyle says is one of the greatest intellectual crimes is the crime of the Orientalists against Islam, because they made up all this stuff about the Prophet Sallallahu and and this is what this guy read. So that's unfortunate. These people, uh, most of them, they say we're objective, right? The university is an objective system, right? <laughs> well, the fact that the vast majority of professors in Islamic studies happen to be from a certain area of the world that <laughs> doesn't really like Muslims very much is kind of unusual objectivity, right? And they definitely have political agendas a lot of times in the classes that they teach. And, and also, a lot of their arguments, if you're not well grounded in your deen, a lot of their arguments are very well convincing. You see, if you haven't really studied Islam in depth, they can do objectively, right? It's, it's called what the Arabs call 
putting the poison in the honey, right? You see, you, you say what a wonderful religion Islam is, and oh, it created this great culture, and da-da-da-da-da, and by the way, right? And then they'll bring in the poison, you see, and they do it very subtly. So you don't realize, you know, it's like giving the person a little bit the way the European women used to kill their husbands, is they put a little bit of hair every day in the food, right? And then they'd get these balls of hair in the stomach, <laughs> and eventually die, right? So it's, you give them a little bit at a time, right? And then by the end of the course, the person's totally confused. The way to change that, the first thing is that, I'll give you a good example. In, in California, there was a, uh, a young, not so young, but um, Pakistani man whose daughter went to uh, seventh grade. And she brought home this book that had a chapter on Islam. And it was all, the problem was a Bedouin, camel trader, and blah, blah, blah. All this rubbish, right? It's a lot of this, and um, he got so angry, he started this letter-writing campaign and got all of these people to write letters. Now, there, I'm sure there were many Muslims that just read it and said, that's terrible, you know, and, and then, yeah, no, none of that's true, but they don't do anything about it. See, most Muslims, if there's fitna, they become great letter-writers. I've noticed that. Like in communities, whenever there's like pro trouble, boom, you get these people that become the biggest activists in the world. They're calling up the phone, did you know what so-and-so did, and blah, blah, blah. And it just gets them going, right? But things about deen and about islah, about rectification and changing, everybody's an armchair um, Muslim, right? That's terrible, that's horrific, and we should change that. But they don't get up out of the armchair. Well, this man did. And because of that, because of his efforts, the California um, textbook now in seventh grade has an excellent chapter on Islam. I mean, he went to the very tops of the educational board in California, had Muslim writers come in, and they showed them how it was all incorrect information, and they changed it, you see. And that's what that person did. People have to monitor these classes, they have to monitor what's going on, people that know what they're talking about have to be in there and put pressure. You can put pressure on these people and they should not be allowed. There's some uh, woman teaching Islamic studies in California that was using Salman Rushdie's book as the textbook, right? And that's all based on the fact that there are not Muslims with enough ghira, what's like their jealousy for this deen or their love of this deen that makes them go out and do things, right? So that's, that is a jihad and it's also a da'wah. And da'wah is nothing other than jihad. There's no such thing as babu da'wah. In books of fiqh, there's no chapter called the chapter of da'wah. There's a chapter called babu jihad and the first section on it is da'wah. So that's, that's a jihad, to go out and change what these people are doing because there's a lot of people out there. They're very well funded. I mean, the, uh, the Ahmadiyya are so well funded, it's unbelievable. You go all over California, in all the bookstores, and, and the book, the Islamic section is filled with Ahmadiyya books, representing Islam. And they're really well published, and all this. Where's that money coming from? The same with the Baha'i movement. Very well funded. Right? And so there's funding that goes on. Muslims don't have enough ghira, right? Have enough love of their religion to pull out from their pocket and start doing something about this and changing it. We certainly have the numbers and we have the intellectual capacity, but there needs to be people that get out and actually do things and change it, and it can happen. So, you know, that's a starting place. Making sure textbooks correctly reflect the Islamic teaching. I mean, textbooks like Maxine Robinson are unacceptable. 
I, I mean, I've seen so many comparative religion books, they'll have the chapter on Buddhism written by a Buddhist scholar, they'll have the chapter on Protestant written by a Protestant scholar, and Catholicism written by a... Then they come to the Islamic section, and it's written by, you know, some Christian or Jewish uh, writer that has a PhD in Islamic studies. Right? That's what is objectivity. We're being objective. If a Muslim wrote it, right, it wouldn't be objective, would it? Right? Well, how, why do you let the Buddhists write about the Buddhism? Well, because it's Buddhism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, anyway. Oh, the green one? Which one? Many Muslim youth lead a double identity, one at home and another outside home, which does not confirm to Islamic teachings. Like, the, that's the Clark Kent syndrome. <laughs> In, inside the home, they're mild-mannered <laughs> Abdullah, and outside the home, they're super fasik, right? <laughs> so, uh, which does not conform to Islamic teachings. How would you address this problem to bring the youth back to Islam? Well, oh, okay. Hmm. Yeah, I don't find it. Anyway. Um, oh. Yeah. Islamic course at U of T is set out to, to dis... No, this one's a different one. Oh, yeah. That's right. Sorry. <laughs> I'm still... Now I'm about 25,000 feet coming down. Okay. Yeah, that's what I... Oh. Islam, you said Islam metaphorically is a, is a house of God. Well, it's called Darul Islam. And that's the traditional... And Darul Salam in the Quran. Allah calls Yad'u ila Darul Salam. Allah is... The Da'wah is to the house of peace. So it's, it's not... It's a Quranic term. And with certain mannerisms, if one is not going to observe them, then they should get out. Is that not being extreme? What about people going through different degrees of practicing? Okay. I, I accept that as well as a criticism. Um... Criticisms are always nice when they're put in this nice way, right? I mean, when it says, you stupid idiot, what are you telling people? You're a fundamentalist fanatic. I mean, that puts you off. But when it's done in this kind of nice, polite way, is that not being extreme? <laughs> you, you're, you just kind of naturally tend to accept things like that, which is nice, because that's the way criticism should be. Nice. Um, so I accept that. But I am extreme, so what's, you got a problem with that? <laughs> um, you know, where I got that from, actually, I go to the prisons, right? Not as a prisoner, but as a, like, to teach people about Islam, right? And to learn, actually, because I do learn a lot there. Um, and, and one of the things this Muslim prisoner told me, right? Because these guys, most of them, have spent about 10 years pumping weights and their arms are kind of bigger than both my thighs put together and there's this picture of me with these five guys around me they're all like six foot five and I'm kind of in the middle of this thing looking like a worm or something so uh, one of the things they told me is that 
the reputation of the Muslims is so good at Soledad prison that when they have shutdowns and things like that, they actually exempt Muslims from... Guys start becoming Muslims to get the perks, right? But they'd be dealing drugs on set. Yo, salam alaikum, bro, how you doing? And then they'd be, deal, right? they'd be selling the drugs, right? So they were starting to get a bad reputation from these guys. So what they told me they did, this really great guy who <laughs> was about six foot five and had arms as big as my two thighs, said that, so I said, well, what'd you do with them? And he said, well, we just took them aside and let them know that <laughs> the house has rules. <laughs> and if you don't want to abide by the rules, then get out of the house. <laughs> and that's what they did, right? So they kind of maintained it, and I, and I like the idea, but it is a little extreme. <laughs> so I, I do believe that, and I really mean this in all sincerity, particularly in this country, but really all over the Muslim world. We've had incidents, really, of young Muslims like actually throwing acid on women's legs in certain areas of the world, considering that like Amr bin Ma'roof and Nahi an al-Munkar, right? Like enjoying, I mean, that has happened, right? It's, things have gotten totally out of hand, you know, and I don't, that is not the methodology of the Prophet. First of all, وسلم, that you, we, Islam does not allow for vigilantism. There is no vigilantism in Islam. You cannot take the law into your own hand. That is why you cannot go out and kill Salman Rushdie. You cannot, a Muslim cannot go out and shoot Salman Rushdie. Because we have a system, a nilam. It's not fawda. If all of a sudden we just say, everybody take uh, the law into your hand, we'll have people out there blowing people's brains out, you know, because for whatever reasons. I mean, I had somebody tell me once, I guess he learned Hanafi fiqh, and I prayed without a hat on, and he told me, next time you come in this mosque, if you pray, I'm going to tear you up or do this or that. And I was like, okay. <laughs> I'll wear a hat next time, right? Last time I went to that mosque, right? So, I, I really believe people are at different evolutionary levels. Muslim women that are wearing hijab today, five years ago, were not. Or two years ago, or two days ago. So there is an evolution, and we have to be aware of that. As well as Muslims that were praying, some Muslims only prayed Juma last year, and this year they're praying all five prayers. Some people are praying all their prayers at the end of the day, when they get home from work. You know, so people are at different stages in their spiritual development, and that is something w that we always have to be aware of and concerned about, right? I mean, there's Omar's method, which is off with their heads, and the Prophet ﷺ tempered that down. You can see the transition of Omar. You know, Abu Bakr's method, anhu, was um, to kind of be gentle and, and forgiving for certain things. And the Prophet was the most of people that made ease for people. I mean, if you look at the man who came and he said to the Prophet Harektu, Harektu, you know, I've, I've destroyed myself. And then he said, what happened? He said, I was with my wife during the day in Ramadan. So the Prophet said, you have to make kafara, right? To expiate that. And he said, what do I do? And then he said, well, you have to um, feed people, right? And he said, I don't have anything to feed people with. So the Prophet had somebody go get dates from the Beit al-Mal, and he gave the man dates, and he said, feed the people with these dates. He said, who do I feed? He said, the poor people. He said, there's nobody poorer than my family. He said, then feed your family, and he laughed. 
And the point was, is that the man had made Tawbah. He was genuine in his Tawbah. And so the Prophet ﷺ made it easy for him, because the point is not to be harsh. The point is to bring people back to Allah. And if you see them coming back to Allah, don't push them out. And the Prophet didn't say to him, what a wretched man you are, you did that, get out of here, get out of my faith. That's not the way of the Prophet And a lot of people unfortunately are like that. So I agree with you, I was just using an extreme example. Because it upsets me. Uh, you know, when I became Muslim, uh, the first thing I did, I read all these books, right? about the Sahaba and Omar and all these things. And then I went to, I won't name the country because it's not really fair. And I saw all these Muslims and I was like, what? I mean, who are these people? You know, what do they have to do with Islam and with this teaching? And to me, they, you know, one of the du'as in the Quran is, رَبَّنَا لَا تَجْعَنَّ فِتْنَةً لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لَا تَجْعَنَّ فِتْنَةً لِلَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا Oh, our Lord, don't make us a fitna, right, for those who disbelieve, right? And, and that means don't make us like in Bosnia and Herzegov, right? They're a fitna now because those people that are fighting them, they're in big trouble. I mean, they are. They're in big trouble. What they're doing to those people is a terrible thing. But it also has that, you know, d don't let us be an excuse for people not to become Muslim, which is what the Muslims are now. I mean, people, if you call people Islam, they say, Islam, you mean like they have in the Middle East? Right? Or in, I was in Pakistan, or I was in Morocco, or I was in somewhere. You know? So, th that's, that just, it's upsetting to see that. That Muslims that claim to be Muslims, and then they behave the way they do. And I do it sometimes too. So, you know, some, somebody once said, uh, like, making fun of people, it's a bad habit. And Allah says, Be shuhada, anfusikum. You know, bear witness even if it's against yourselves, right? So it's a, it's, I mean, Muslims have to have insaf. They have to have justice and they have to have that when they deal with people and when they deal with themselves. And so, um, you know, there's one man once said that when, when I looked at people, I cried out to God for justice. But then when I looked at myself, I just cried out for mercy, right? So it's easy to condemn everybody outside yourself. There's a beautiful hadith of the Prophet ﷺ. He said, "Man nas, The one that says the people are destroyed, he's the most destroyed of them. Because it's kibriya, it's like a arrogance. You look at other people and you say, "Ah, they're all worthless, good for nothings, except me, of course, right?" And that's a real bad state to be in. There's a lot of Muslims fall into that state. Oh, go ahead. Bismillah. Uh, go ahead. Uh -huh. As uh, If Allah knows everything, Is this a trick question? No. Okay. It could be to you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, go ahead. I'm ready. What is it he just so everyone he knows will be bad? to hell and so does everybody to know who will be good to heaven. Uh-huh. Um, well, because Allah created us, right, for a reason. And the reason is that we worship Him. 
And what he tells us is that those who worship him will be rewarded with paradise, and those that disobey him will be rewarded with hell. And so it's actually from Allah's generosity. Are you listening to answer? It was a trick question. So one of the things, though, and I'll tell you something about the adab of Islam, like good, the good manners of Islam, is that we don't question Allah's actions, why Allah does things. That's one of the questions. In the Quran it says, Allah will not be asked. In other words, no one can say to Allah, why? But Allah says in the Quran, but they will be asked. So Allah will ask us about what we did. Whereas we can't ask Him about why He did things certain ways. Because only Allah knows that, you see. So that's probably the best answer. I have a written question. Um, there are many brothers and sisters who pray and follow the guidelines of Islam. However, in some aspects, culture and society pollutes the true Islam in the fall, i.e. family violence. How does Islam deal with this issue and how can we as Muslims control our anger and frustration that we may back out on families? Well, I, I think like family violence is a good um, issue. I mean, it's a terrible issue, but it's, it's, a, it's important to bring it up because it certainly does um, unfortunately permeate a lot of households, particularly I, in the West, they say that the most dangerous place for a woman is in her own home, right? From domestic violence, especially after football games, if the home team lost. They actually have to like double or triple the hotlines for um, wife abuse during that period because the guy, if the 49ers lost, right, he takes it out on his wife. It's all your fault they lost, right? So, um, I mean, the way that Islam deals with all these things is is it warns us. I mean, if you don't know the teaching, you see, it says in the Quran, "Inna Allah min ibadihi al-ulama." Those that really have a fearful awareness of God from His servants, from His slaves, are those who know things. I mean, if you look at the verse, the chapter in the Quran, Qad Sami'a, right? The, where Allah tells us that the woman was heard, her complaint was heard from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and He replied to that This woman went, right? Khawla, she went to the Prophet ﷺ and complain about her, the abuse that she received from her husband. And the Prophet ﷺ, his, you know, they say the wrong action of the Prophet ﷺ, because in Surah Al-Fatih, Allah says, إِنَّ فَتَحْنَا لَكَ فَتْحَ مُبِينًا لِيَغْفِرَ اللَّهُ لَكَ مَا تَقَدَّمَ مِن ذَنْبِكَ وَمَا تَأَخْرَ To forgive your dhamb, your wrong action. The wrong action of the Prophet ﷺ is called تَرْكُ الْأَفْضَلْ لِفَضِيلَةِ it's actually leaving the best thing for a virtuous thing. I mean, that's what he does wrong, is that, like when he was talking to the wealthy man in Mecca, and Umm Maktoum came to him, his wrong action was that he was giving da'wah to somebody who was less worthy of the da'wah than the other person, because that person wanted to hear it, and the other person didn't. So it was more appropriate that he spoke to the one who didn't, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So he told the woman that the best thing was just to be patient and, and you know, not to make it an issue.
She didn't accept that answer. And she said, well, I went to the Messenger of Allah and he didn't help me, so I'm going straight to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that's what she did. And Allah heard that woman's prayer. And she, and that revelation came down as a warning to people who abuse their wives. That their prayer is heard. And if it's not answered in this world, it's answered in the next world. And people have to be really careful. Because the Prophet said, Fear Fear oppression. Because it's multiplied darknesses on the day of judgment. And Umar once was going out um, with some of the Sahaba and he saw this woman and they were actually going for some important business and he stopped, got off his horse, went and spoke with her and spoke for quite some time and then he came back and they said what are you spending so much time with that old woman, Ajuz, you know and he said that's Khawla bin Thalaba the woman that Allah heard from seven heavens he said and Omar doesn't want to get on her bad side <laughs> right, so that's the idea behind that. You have to inculcate, you see, in people. And that's the duty of the community of learning, of acquiring knowledge. I mean, even Atta, one of the great fuqaha of, of Medina said that, that the, you know, there's no darb. Even in the Quran when it's mentioned, it's mentioned in a sequence. And you can't just hit a woman. And what in the Aqrab and Masadiq, which is kind of foundational, one of the foundational works in Maliki fiqh, um, Abu al-Barakat al-Dardir wrote the book, and he mentions that about striking a woman, and he says, as a last resort, um, in things like leaving the prayer, <laughs> right? And a man is beaten for that as well, you see? So don't think they're not the same there. You know, because men actually, the Qadi can order a man to be beaten as well. So it's very dangerous. Um, the Prophet said the best of you would never raise your hands to your women. It's not a noble thing to do because Allah has made them physically weaker. Unless you go to America where we've got these bodybuilders. Do you have these women up here yet? Uh, they're pretty scary. Um... So, you know, that is learning, knowledge, acquiring knowledge, implementing knowledge. And the men and women have to learn the deen. You have to learn your deen, you see. But women should not be subjugated to violence in the house. I, I don't... There's no place in, in Islam for that abuse. You know, I know women that have been put in the hospital. Now, alhamdulillah, I don't think it's anywhere near as bad as it is in, in Western society. I really don't. But Allahu alam, I don't know. You know, because... Muslims tend to keep the dirty laundry inside the house, whereas in Western society they put it on Geraldo show or something. Okay, um, I'd like to go to the mic on the left there, Alaikum Salaam wa Like yourself, I'm a person who became a Muslim um, basically from study and from guidance from Allah. And uh, when I came into Islam a little younger than you, um, we didn't have many people who gave us an understanding between the Islam of the Rasulullah and the cultural practices of Islam. Right. So we had to learn for ourselves. Uh, but what I want to ask you is that I've noticed there's a lot of young people in this audience. Uh, and a lot of the questions that are always coming up to me is the issues around marriage, 
There's issues around what young brothers should be doing. There's issues around what we're going to do with the education we get in these universities. There's issues around whether we should stay in North America or should we go back to the countries of our fathers and try to do something about Islam. So all these things are constantly coming to me as a father, and I have six children. And um, it's an issue that is always there. Yeah. And it's something I need to share with the brothers here in this audience because I think that a lot of us have children who are of marriageable ages, right. and uh, we know the dunya. You know, I mean, coming from the dunya, yeah. oh, I know what goes on in the dunya. And so when I say yes, girls 16, 17, 18 should be married because it's safer and it's better. But then again, we have all the other problems right. you know, in terms of can we find a suitable mate? Can we find brothers who are going to be sincere about their Islam? They're going to be sincere about taking care of people and so forth and so on. So I don't know. I, I'm, I'm asking questions about that. I see speakers after speakers coming and talking about Islam, and the same issues are never dealt with. Okay? We don't have a way of, of dealing with young brothers and young sisters in terms of marriage. Right. We don't have ways of here in this society. Okay, because we're accepting the society and we're accepting its rules, at the same time we want to be Muslim. And, I, and the whole concept of conflict between the parent and the youth, these things are never resolved. And I, and I hear the questions and I, and I look at the people all the time, and young people don't seem like they're taking the, I don't know, the initiative right. to resolve these kinds of problems. Now, we get scholars who come in and they talk about everything. But the problems still remain. Yeah. So I'm asking Which is a good point. It gets back to about these fundamental issues that really aren't dealt with. Yes. Yeah, I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. I would like you to maybe address it a little bit before you know, that yeah. goes out. Because you know, what I'm seeing is if the youth don't take the initiative and make Islam strong here, yeah. then we're going to be washed out. Because people like myself and the other brothers who are gray in their beards and stuff, we're getting older. We're not going to be able to go up on the front lines and fight. We're not going to be able to think about going to make jihad. We're not going to go to Afghanistan and Kashmir and Somalia. We're not going to do those things. This could be the young 19 and 20 and 23 year old brothers who got the big muscles like your, you know, and all that kind of stuff. And, and you, you look like you still have a fight in you, inshallah. <laughs> but the point I'm saying is that, you know, the, the leadership that I find in our city yeah. does not have that component. Yeah. Okay? Brothers become old before they old. Yeah. You know, they, they lack habits and, and attitudes that are ancient, yeah. even when they're still in their forms. Yeah. And, and it's difficult, I see, for the young people to relate to them. So yeah. that when you go to Juma, you say, where's all the young people at? Yeah. That's, that's somebody told me once, like, where he came from in his Middle Eastern country. He said, when you hit 50, you put on the abaya, and you get the hubbly-bubbly, and then you just, that's it, you know, life's over, you just sit and talk. <laughs> give, us, give us something for the young people to take home. Well, you know, yeah, I think one of the, our biggest problems, and the, the Americans, Canadians, Western Europe, as well as the Muslim countries, are all suffering from the basic issue of the destruction of community. The whole concept of community. I mean, we do not have integral communities anymore where you grow up knowing the people around you. You pray in the same mosque with them five times a day. You know when somebody's sick. You know when somebody's ill. We don't have that anymore. I mean, we are living in dark, dark times from that perspective. So the, the breakdown of community, and Islam is ultimately a totally community-based religion. I mean, it's based on Jumu'ah, it's based on visiting. I mean, look at the things that are incumbent on the Muslim. 
visiting the sick, the janazah, following the janazah prayer, and, and saying, Ya Rahmukum Allah, if he sneezes. And it's social. It's about interacting with other people. Deenul Mu'amala. Deen is interaction and transaction. And that's based on community. That has disintegrated. There's a beautiful book that I'd recommend a lot of you reading particularly because you're Canadians, it's called In the Absence of Sacred, and it's written by a man named Jerry Mander. Um, funny name, but he, uh, he went and studied the Inuit Indians in Canada and the destruction of their society because of satellite television. How their, all their traditional values and their whole society was completely uprooted within five years. All their oral traditions, the respect of elders, it all just went out the window because Dallas came to town. And so we have these massively destructive elements, right, within our societies that are pulling people down. And what we have to do is work out strategies, right? And I think that's what you're talking about is strategies of dealing with these issues. And people are trying different things. For me, you know, one of the fundamental principles in Islam is the Prophet ﷺ said, The one that's able to, to support and do and be married, let him get married. Now people now they think, means having a degree in engineering, having a, 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 an apartment, and the most important thing is the, the, the furniture set. <laughs> that they usually put in plastic, like they have plastic cover over it and people go in there, they only sit on it on the Eid days or something. I, it's like they have to save up all this money to buy this thing and then it's just this horrific monster that sits in the room and they all go in, they sit on the floor. That's what knocks me out, right? You go into these houses and they've got this furniture that the poor guy had to get in debt to buy it because it's like, quote unquote, the cultural necessity. Right? And then they sit on the floor. Right? Get rid of the thing. You can invite more people over to sit on your floor. <laughs> so there's this cultural baggage that people have deep. Lucky for us, I mean seriously, one of our, the blessings of not coming from Muslim countries is that we, we kind of can jettison all that stuff because part of the reason we became Muslim is we weren't really satisfied with any of it in the first place. It's like what I said is I always meet these Muslims, I'm going this way and they're going that way. I'm saying, wait a second, go back. I'm coming from there and it's not a good place to be. They say, no, 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 it's a great place. I saw it on television. <laughs> well, let me tell you something. Television and reality are two different things. No, everybody has a refrigerator, right? <laughs> so, you know, not to make light of the issue, there's major problems. The marriage, people should be getting married at an early age. I mean, marriage, Fatima radiallahu anha was 15 years old by lunar years. Sayyidina Ali was 17 years old. They were young people, right? Many of, um, in traditional Muslim societies, women got married at the onset of um, the puberty and the men got married 15, 16, 17. I mean, we have Osama bin Zayd leading an army at the age of 17. And that wasn't some kind of joke or something. I mean, that, he was a man. He wasn't a... I mean, you meet 17-year-olds now, particularly, you know, I don't know about Canada, but America, you meet these 17-year-olds, and they're, you know, I don't know, television has destroyed their minds or what. 
but you're dealing with the most infantile behavior. You know, I went, I studied in West Africa with Mauritanians, and I've met 14, 12, 13, 14 year olds that have so much substance and depth that grew up in the middle of the Saharan desert memorizing Quran and learning Arabic grammar and learning fiqh and all these things and the depth of being that you get in a 15 or 16 year old is just so incredible so what we're seeing is not normal it is not normal behavior um, one of the things this society does is it it keeps people children until they're like 30 right I mean seriously Americans stay children to, and then when they get to 30 it's all of a sudden they get a little worried because they don't look like children anymore right I mean you can look like a, a child for a long in your 20s because a lot of things don't change then you start getting all of a sudden they, they don't look like then they get a little worried right and then they get to 40 and they're in a total state of crises because now they they're not children at all and so what happens they have two choices try to pretend to be 18 years old, which a lot of them do, and they look ridiculous, you know, or go into a real deep crisis and resolve it somehow through psychotherapy or whatever. And it really never gets resolved because they end up in pink shorts playing golf on, when they're 70 years old, right, drop dead on the 18th hole. You know, what a way to go, that's what they say. So the, we have to find ways of you know, now people won't marry young men that are really good men unless they've done certain things. One of them is go and get um, college education, things like that, and do all these things. And there, we have to develop ways within our communities. It is extremely dangerous to be in this society without being married if you've, once you've reached the age of puberty. I mean, that's, and the, the beauty of Islam is that it Unlike Christianity, right, and I can be critical of Christianity because the Quran is critical of Christianity, it praises Christianity where praise is due in saying that they have mercy in their hearts, and a lot of them do. But it's also critical about certain things, and one of the criticisms is that Islam deals with human nature. It doesn't pretend that this thing doesn't exist. If you read Paul in the Corinthians, when he talks about why we're free from the law, he says because we're permeated with the Spirit and we could never do wrong. You see, that's his reason why he says we don't need to follow the law anymore. Because we are so spiritual now, who needs the law? Right? Well, unfortunately, Jimmy Swaggart needs the law. <laughs> Because he says he's full of the Holy Ghost, but like Emerson said, I can't hear your words because your actions are shouting so loud. So, you know, we have to deal with that fact. Islam deals with people's nature, and one of our human natures is that we were created weak. And in the tafsir it says, particularly concerning women, men are weak. That is a weakness, a weak area of men. And we have to be protected. The beautiful word for a married person in, in Arabic is muhsan, which means protected. You see, that's what it means. Hisan is the word for fortress. Your wife is a fortress for you. She's a protection that you can seek refuge in, you see. I mean, that's why the Prophet said, if you see a beautiful woman, go to your wife. Go to the fortress so that you're not tempted in the fitna. So we have to marry our youth. That's totally essential. The, the difficulty is developing strategies whereby people can complete their education. I mean, alhamdulillah, I was able to do it. It was a struggle, but... Muslims have developed this bourgeois mentality to such a degree that, that uh, they won't 
They won't deal with, with some fundamental issues, and so they end up losing their children. That's the truth. They lose their children. And in the hadith it said that if, a ch if, a, uh, if your child, if you don't marry your child and they fornicate, you actually have a portion of that ithm, that wrong action. You see, that's part of the parent's responsibility to find a suitable mate for their child. That is a responsibility of the parent. It's a completion of raising the child, the tarbiyah. It's a completion of the tarbiyah, right? And so that, that's essential, you know. We are out of time. So we'll answer one last yeah, question. One last question that's uh, relevant to the topic. All right. Um, uh, I take from my exemplars the Sahaba the and the Prophet. I would like to live the way they do and do da'wah the way they do. It's hard, however, to do that in this society. I would like very much to gain Islamic knowledge, and even that is hard to do. What advice can you give to anyone who wants to follow the best of mankind? doing da'wah from the way you live to inviting people to the deen of Islam? And the second question is very similar. In undertaking da'wah, what are the steps to go by, especially for the youth? The, um, you know, I would say, I mean, this is from my weak position, but um, the, one, the one thing that we can really recognize quickly if we study the life the Prophet is that from the point that he, that really his whole life was da'wah, even before the message came to him, he was, you know, the, the Arabs they talk about lisan al-hal and lisan al-maqal, right? The, the tongue of state and the tongue of speaking. And they say lisan al-hal ablaghu min lisan al-maqal. As the Arab proverb says that someone's state is more eloquent or it's more reaching than what they say, right? And so before the Prophet ﷺ actually was given this message to deliver, his state was one of absolute sincerity, of trust, of kindness, of generosity. If you look at when Khadija tells him why Allah would never leave him, she says, you're kind to the poor, you tasid al-raham, you know, you, you're kind to your kindred and your help, you help the oppressed, and she gives all these reasons. So that was his state before he became Muslim. And that's why the, the early Sahaba, they recognized it immediately. This man would never lie. You see, so his life was da'wah, even before he was um, given the actual call from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to call people. And that is the most fundamental da'wah is behavior, but there's also the da'wah of speaking out. And one of the things that the scholars, they say, if, you know, if, the, if only the sinless or the only those without wrong action uh, were allowed to call people to the truth of Islam, then no one would call except Ahmed wasallam. I mean, he would be the only one. But we have to call with our capacities. There's a beautiful hadith in Al-Bukhari, the Prophet ﷺ said, بَلِّغُ عَنِّي وَلَوْ آيَةً Tell people about this teaching even if it's only one verse, one ayah of Qur'an. And so give to people what you have. Give to people what you have. And, and the first thing is husn al-mu'amala, your good behavior. That should be the first thing. Smiling is sadaqah. You know, and being kind to people, being good towards people, and people recognize that. In terms of the youth, I, I would recommend, if you're not doing this already, and you probably are, is that um, particularly in, in this uh, 
environment for the university students, there should be active engagement. Proselytizing, I have found, does not work with Western people and, uh, in other words, like preaching. But I think one of the things that really helps is in feeding people, like actually inviting people to, um, to, to feed them and, and having, um, you know, like a cultural experience because these people like to immerse themselves in cultural experience. And just showing them generosity of Islam and, and finding ways of, of giving this message without shoving it down people's throats. Right? Because people don't like that. I don't like it. I, I mean, Joe was waiting to show up at my door. I, <laughs> I'm not home. So, um, you know, I think that's important to do that. Inshallah. Jazakumullah khairan. Inshallah, Allah bless this gathering. And um, the Prophet ﷺ used to f say, Subhanaka Allahumma bihamdika ashadu an la ilaha illa anta astaghfiruka wa tubu ilayk. And that is called dua of khatam, of majlis. And Allah wipes out, inshallah, any mistakes. And I um, ask your forgiveness if I offended anybody, whether Muslim, Jewish, or Christian, or Buddhist, or whatever, because that wasn't my intention. And uh, to overlook my shortcomings and my jet lag. And uh, inshallah, Allah give this community big barakah and increase you in knowledge and action and make you people of knowledge and action. And um, thank you very much for inviting me and for your patience and, and good attentiveness. Assalamu alaikum. Um, alhamdulillah, we've had quite a few people come here. And